Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. Today is May 8th, 2019, and you're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes, discuss major cultural events. This week, we will be talking about the start of Ramadan. I'm Morgan Lee, digital media producer here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined by my co-host, our editor-in-chief, Mark Alley. Hey, Mark. Hey. How are you? You impressed me again with your many interests and activities. I'm going to start calling you the jet setter. You were in Paris the previous weekend, was it? And then last weekend you were in... Pacific Northwest. Pacific Northwest. This, this young woman's a world traveler. Exactly. I went to Vancouver too, so I really, you know, three countries in three weekends. <laughs> How exciting. All right, who's joining us today? Uh, Joseph Cumming is pastor of the International Church at Yale University, and from this base, he works with Muslim, Christian, and Jewish leaders and scholars around the world to promote mutual understanding and reconciliation among the Abrahamic faith communities. He has advanced degrees from Fuller Theological Seminary, my alma mater, and Yale University, and is completing his PhD at Yale in Islamic Studies and Christian Theology. He is an ordained Christian minister with the Assemblies of God. Welcome, Joseph. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I'm just a little curious before we begin. You are now on the East Coast, but you were also on the West Coast, it looks like, when you were at Fuller. What part of the country did you grow up in? So I was born and raised in New York City, but I spent the majority of my adult life in North Africa and the Middle East. So although I'm now living not far from where I grew up, uh, it feels different. I don't know how much of that's because I changed and how much of it's because America changed. But uh, when my wife and I came back to the U.S., we felt in some ways like foreigners here. Were you in Tunisia or Morocco or Algeria or all of the above? Or So we were... Uh, living for 15 years in the Islamic Republic of Mauritania in Northwest Africa, uh, which is the far western end of the uh, Muslim world. And uh, But we've, I've also spent time in, yes, I think you said Tunisia, yes, and Morocco, yes, and I forget what else. I've been spent time in, uh, my wife and I have spent time in uh, a lot of countries across North Africa, the Middle East, and to a lesser extent in Asia. Well, great. I'm sure that will come up later in our discussion. Mark, maybe you can give us a little bit more context for our conversation about Ramadan. Context goes way back. Uh, When the Prophet Muhammad was 40, he started spending more and more time alone, pondering questions that troubled him. He made it a habit to retreat to a cave within a mountain called Al-Hira for a month at a time. And one year, around 610 AD, the Prophet Muhammad went up to Al-Hira one day and was visited by the archangel Gabriel, who grabbed Muhammad and commanded the terrified man to read. Or so begins the traditional Muslim story of the first Ramadan. But as these things go, historically things are a bit more complicated, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. I bring it up because, as Morgan mentioned this week, Muslims around the world are just beginning this special season of prayer and fasting. Islam is uh, the world's second largest religion, with over 1.8 billion followers, or about a quarter of the world's population. 
Muslims make up a majority of population in 50 countries. In our increasingly shrinking world, more and more Muslims are becoming neighbors to Christians, and we've talked about regions of the world where those relations are extremely hostile and even violent. Today on Quick to Listen, we want to talk about the majority of global situations in which Christians and Muslims live peaceably with one another, and in places where Christians have opportunity to befriend Muslims, and if there is opportunity to share the Christian story of Jesus with them. Before we can do that, of course, we need to take the trouble to learn about the customs and beliefs of Muslims. And one place to begin to learn that is to learn about the origins and meaning of the season of Ramadan and what it suggests about the tenor and tone of Islam. All right, we're off and running. So, Joseph, uh, why don't you start by telling us, uh, first of all, uh, maybe describe how you tend to talk about Islam, especially the Prophet Muhammad, and then maybe move into uh, how you understand what happened to, to get Ramadan off and started? Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, first, let me just uh, thank all the listeners for joining us, and I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When I talk about Islam, whether I'm talking with Muslim friends or with uh, non-Muslim friends, Christian friends and others, I think it's very important to show respect, and that includes showing respect for what matters most uh, uh, as sacred to Muslims, just as we want them to show respect for us, even if they don't agree with our faith, even if they don't approve of everything we believe. Nonetheless, we want to be shown respect, and uh, it's very important that we show Muslims respect. So, as you mentioned, for example, I do, when I'm speaking about Muhammad, I refer to him as the Prophet Muhammad. That's not because I believe everything Muslims believe about prophethood. But uh, this is a way of showing respect for how they understand him. And of course, for Christians, the term prophet is, uh, has a much wider range of meaning, from false prophets to true prophets to true prophets who sometimes get things wrong and need discernment, according to 1 Corinthians 14, etc. But I'm simply trying to show respect for my Muslim friends. And I think that respect in our relationship with Muslims is critically, critically important. And has been, I guess that is actually... Uh, leads nicely into your the second part of your question, Mark, which is what what happened in that uh, when Muhammad, uh, Prophet Muhammad, got that first uh, revelation, which was during the month of Ramadan. Uh, interestingly, um, as you suggested, he initially was unsure. Is this real? Is this genuine? What's going on? And what he did was, according to the Islamic tradition, is he went and he talked with a Christian relative who knew something about uh, prophecy. And um, the Christian relative listened to the content of his prophecy, which at that point was something no Christian would ever object to. It was basically turn away from idols, worship the true God, repent of your sins, prepare for God's final judgment. And his Christian relative said, hey, this sounds legit to me. This sounds, this sounds real and, and encouraged him. And I think uh, it's, it's good to remember that, uh, that the Prophet Muhammad had many interactions with Christians during his lifetime, and generally they were uh, positive ones during his lifetime, and that's reflected in, in the Quran and in the traditions of uh, what he said and taught. Uh, but you also mentioned to me, apart from this podcast, that Ramadan actually may have started, there, there are hints of it starting even before this incident. So that's right. The, the sources of information we have historically about um, pre-Islamic Arabia are somewhat fragmentary and somewhat contradictory, so scholars endless, endlessly debate that. I don't want to um, bore our listeners with, with some of those technical debates. But it's clear that um, before Islam, 
the Arab tribes or some of the Arab tribes of Arabia had a custom of, uh, during certain months of the year, abstaining from fighting and warfare, um, or at least only def- only engaging in self-defense, uh, and that Ramadan may have been one of those months, or may not have. It's also pretty clear that um, before Islam, uh, some Arabs had the custom of fasting on the uh, day of Ashura, the 10th, month, 10th day of the month of Muharram, which uh, coincided with the Jewish uh, Yom Kippur day of fasting. And that perhaps some Arabs also, uh, whether because they were Christians or because they were influenced by Christians, had a custom of fasting uh, during Lent. And uh, so many of those customs uh, that you have before Islam uh, then sort of crystallized during the lifetime of, uh, of the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, he did not initially uh, tell people that they needed to fast during the month of Ramadan. It was actually um, some years into his public ministry after a famous battle called the Battle of Badr, which also took place in the month of Ramadan, when uh, he began teaching that uh, people should fast during the month of Ramadan and uh, also abstain from warfare and uh, fighting and gossip and etc. And Ramadan took the form that we, we see today. So it sounds like then kind of the, I don't know what the right word is, the modern rendition of Ramadan was really something that was actually developed during the lifetime of Muhammad. Uh, that's right. I mean, you can always find uh, a critical Western scholar who will doubt the authenticity <laughs> of those traditions, but most, uh, certainly all Muslim scholars and most uh, non-Muslim uh, critical scholars would agree that, that yes, after the Battle of Badr, during his lifetime, he gave instructions for how uh, Ramadan should be observed, and uh, it was essentially the form that we have today. So what is the form we have today? Talk about that. Uh what are, the, what are the outlines of what, what it means to, uh, I don't know, you call it celebrate, honor, uh, observe Ramadan today? I think all of those words are legitimate because it is an observation and a celebration and uh, forget your other word, but they were all good words. So I think the most obvious thing from a, uh, an outsider's, from a non-Muslim's point of view, is that during the month of Ramadan, um, Muslims are supposed to fast from the first light in the morning, so not sunrise, but before that, the first light in the morning until just after sunset every evening. And that means no food and no drink, so including no water, and no sex, no smoking, nothing that involves something penetrating the body from outside and going in. But they're also supposed to abstain from Fighting, arguing, gossiping, bickering, uh, bitterness, etc. They're supposed to emphasize forgiving one another and asking forgiveness from one another. And in um, common, uh, in, in, in common practice among in communities around the world where Muslims and Christians live side by side, it's customary for Muslims and Christians to visit each other to say, hey, forgive me for anything I've done wrong to you in the last year, and I forgive you for anything you did to me in the last year, and that's kind of a, a beautiful custom. The other thing I'll mention that I think is is a very important for many Muslims does not flow directly from the sort of rules that I described, but flows, well, two things that flow indirectly from them. One is that so in the evening, after sunset, you are supposed to pray the sunset prayer, and you, then you're supposed to do, um, you know, have certain foods uh, that are traditional, and um, 
after not eating all day, you traditionally have some very nice foods to break your fast with. And most Muslims around the world grow up with very happy childhood memories of this one month every year when dad makes sure to get home from work before sunset, mom makes sure to get home from work before sunset, the whole family is together, and the kid was probably not fasting until they're old enough to fast, but they remember from their early childhood uh, that happy, long evenings together, mom and dad and the kids all together, having delicious, wonderful, traditional foods together. And if you think about how people who grew up in Christian homes or even in nominally Christian homes, or even formerly Christian homes, feel about the Christmas Advent season, a sort of joyful celebration of all of those traditions. That's how many Muslims feel about their childhood memories of those happy family times, enjoying those meals together as a family in the evening, and emphasizing love and forgiveness and community. It's a very special time for Muslims. The other thing is that you know, Muslims, like Christians, are not always devout as they aspire to be. But Ramadan is a time that reminds you to, hey, I do want to get serious about my faith. And so um, many Muslims become much more serious about spiritual things. And that means they're interested in talking with each other about uh, spiritual things, but they're also very interested in talking with their Christian neighbors and friends about spiritual things as well. And I've often found during Ramadan, I have uh, some of my best conversations about spiritual things with Muslim friends during the month of Ramadan. Sometimes I would say, during our years living in Mauritania, I would say we had literally more rich spiritual conversations with people in the month of Ramadan than in the other 11 months of the year combined. That's very interesting, yeah. So I, I, I'm curious about the calendar that they use that sets the date each year for Ramadan. Yeah, so um, Muslims follow a lunar calendar. And uh, so they have 12 lunar months. And if you have 12 lunar months, that does not add up quite to 365 days. It's more like about 354 and a half, which means that each year, the month of Ramadan begins approximately 10 days earlier in the uh, Gregorian calendar year uh, than it did the year before. So over the course of about 30 years, you cycle through and it happens in all different uh, times of the year. Yeah, because that's my memory is that Ramadan seems to happen at any time of the year. I've, I seem to remember it happening in the fall and the summer and now in the spring. So that explains that. Yeah, so it's it's challenging for Muslims who are living in societies that are a majority non-Muslim, like the U.S. If uh, Ramadan happens to fall in the middle of your final exam period, for example, which it is happening for many American Muslims right now. You know, you still got to take that final exam when you're fasting, uh, and that could be challenging. Uh, or if you're an athlete training for a major race and Ramadan happens to come right at the time that you're, um, you know, have your major race, uh, that, that could be uh, challenging for Muslims. But uh, they, they, you know, they, they try to be faithful and, and observe it. I do recall, maybe you'd remember the name, but there was a Muslim uh, NBA player who was in the middle of Ramadan and during the playoffs, I believe, and he nonetheless stuck to his discipline. And that's an exhausting and water-draining sport. <laughs> so that was quite impressive. Well, that's the thing I think most of us associate with Ramadan. It's just suffering. It's fasting from water and food, and it's suffering. But it's, So it's very helpful for you to see it, see it from the perspective of the Muslims who consider it the, a joyous period. That's right. I mean, obviously, 
fasting from food and water and sex, and particularly if you're addicted to cigarettes, fasting from cigarettes uh, from first light until sunset is difficult, and I, there, there is suffering involved, particularly in hot countries. And I had the privilege of keeping Ramadan myself in July in Mauritania and uh, in the desert where the temperatures were 130 and higher, and we got pretty dehydrated by the end of the day. But um, at the same time, it is this very joyful, happy uh, time of with family memories and uh, community memories that are that are very precious to people. So you've got you've got both elements there in the month of Ramadan. I should emphasize also that uh, both the Quran and the Islamic tradition make exceptions. So if you're sick, uh, if you're traveling, if you're pregnant, if you're breastfeeding, if you're you know any number of uh, reasons why you might not be able to fast or it might not be wise or healthy to fast, uh, then you are not expected to fast, uh, although you are expected, if you can, to make up those days you missed later, sometime later in the year. In fact, in Mauritania, basically, uh, Ramadan de facto begins about a week or two before Ramadan because everybody waits to the last minute to make up the days they missed from the year before. <laughs> so, question are there significant differences between the way that Sunni, Shia, and Sufi communities observe Ramadan? Uh, not huge differences um, between uh, the ways they observe Ramadan. Uh, I, I think perhaps the most significant thing is that um, the Prophet's son-in-law, Ali, who, according to Sunnis, was the his fourth successor or the fourth caliph, and according to Shia, should have been his first successor, Ali was murdered during the month of Ramadan. And so that occasion is very, very important. Um, occasion, the fasting for Shia takes on, uh, that is, is very important for Shia and takes on an element of mourning for his martyrdom. Uh, for Sunnis, that's uh, not such a significant thing, though. But other than that, uh, there are not huge differences between how Sunnis and Shia observe. There are minor differences. So I know it's hard to put a figure on this, uh, the, the percentage of Muslims who actually try to follow Ramadan with utmost seriousness. I asked this uh, as a Christian, because in, in general, fasting has fallen out of favor among Christians. I remember going to a Catholic service on a Friday in the middle of Lent. After the service was out, I left the church, and as I overheard a couple of Catholic parishioners talking about going out to breakfast that day. Well, Friday is supposed to be a fast day, so they didn't even blink about the fact that they were going to have food on that fast day. I just wonder how that works in, in Islam today. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously it's going to vary from Muslim community to Muslim community and from Muslim-majority country to Muslim-majority country. And I don't have firm statistics for you, but my observation of Muslims I've known both in Muslim-majority countries and in the West and, and all around the world is the large majority of Muslims around the world do try to, if they're healthy enough, do some amount of fasting in Ramadan. But often what happens is they will set out on the first day of Ramadan to um, take it quite seriously. And then at some point in the course of the month, they kind of run out of steam and don't um, don't necessarily stick to it uh, very strictly for the whole month. But obviously, those who are more devout, they do. They yeah, do do the yeah, whole yeah. Well, I'll admit to that weakness in practicing fasting for Lent. So there you go. <laughs> and, and let me just mention that although I think that fasting has very unfortunately fallen out of uh, fashion for 
Western Christians, and I do see it as very unfortunate. Uh, I learned a lot about fasting from living with Muslims and going back and looking at what the Bible teaches about fasting, realizing, wow, this is really important in the Bible um, and really important in the teachings and practice of our Lord Jesus. And um, we ought to be more serious about fasting. But also in other Christian communities around the world, uh, outside of the West, fasting has not fallen out of favor at all. Egyptian uh, Coptic Orthodox Christians, for example, uh, not only do they fast for 55 days in Lent, and um, and their practice generally is to eat a vegan diet for 55 days, but they have lots of other mandatory fasts throughout the year that they take very seriously. And when I talk with Egyptian Muslims, they say, hey, I think it's harder to give up all animal products for 55 days than to give up food and water just during the daylight hours for 28 or 29 days. Uh, so they actually think that the, uh, their, their Christian neighbors fast more than they do. So, um, so and uh, I, I, you know, I think Nigerian Muslim, I'm sorry, Nigerian Christians, Korean Christians, Chinese Christians take fasting very, very seriously. It's really we Western Christians who could use to learn from both our Christian brothers and sisters around the world and from our Muslim neighbors about uh, taking fasting seriously. Yeah, I don't think uh, I hadn't focused on the centrality of uh, eating bread and fasting until I read a book by Alexander Schmemann, who's an Orthodox uh, writer, and he 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 noted that yeah, from the, the the celebration of the Eucharist, which is the high point in many Christian traditions, most most Christians across the world, in fact, to the very beginning where the first sin has to do with the eating of food, it's just a really crucial theme in Scripture that. Deserves more attention in Christian churches, I think, which would include fasting. Well, that's right. And, you know, um, in the uh, um, second century AD, we have a very interesting document called the Didache, um, and it, it has a very funny line where it says, When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but you shall fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. And on the one hand, it kind of misses Jesus' point about what constitutes hypocrisy in fasting. On the other hand, it tells us, so the early church in the second century AD used to fast two days a week. And you have later in the third and fourth centuries also um, early church documents that uh, talk about the custom of Christians that uh, most Christians did fast uh, on Wednesdays and Fridays, or at the very least on Fridays, at the very least until mid-afternoon, which was the time when Jesus died on Good Friday. And coming up to the modern evangelical movement, uh, John Wesley thought uh, that should be his practice, that he would fast Wednesdays and Fridays until sunset, and he did not want to ordain people unless they at least fasted on Fridays, at least until that mid-afternoon when Jesus died. And this so is in-season in and out-of-season of Lent. That's right. How in about season that? In-season and out-of-season of wow. Lent. Wow, wow, wow. This episode is brought to you by Church Law and Tax. Church Law and Tax understands the realities of church work, helping thousands of churches stay informed and get equipped with comprehensive resources on legal, tax, financial, and risk management matters. Do you have a question on housing allowance? Need information on selecting church insurance? Looking for insights on what is or isn't unrelated business income? Or how about some guidance on how to properly receive charitable contributions? 
churchlawandtax.com equips you for success with access to the most respected and knowledgeable attorneys, accountants, financial advisors, and risk managers guiding churches today. Get the practical information and timely coverage you need to keep your church up to date and lead your ministry with confidence. Join churchlawandtax.com today. So since Ramadan seems to be the high high season of the year for Islam, I mean, what about it do you think especially characterizes the faith of Muslims that can help us give us insight into Islam? For Muslims, as for Christians, when you fast, you, you have the experience that um, you find yourself saying, God, I love you more than I love food. And after you've gone a certain number of hours without food, you feel like, you know, I love food an awful lot. Uh, (laughs) Food is just seeming extremely, extremely attractive to me. And that constant decision, minute by minute, but I love God more, but I love God more, but I love God more, it deepens your uh, feeling of love for God. And that, that happens, I know for me as a Christian, when I fast, and I, it similarly happens for Muslims as they are sort of forcing themselves to remind themselves, I love God more than I love food. And at this point, I, I love food an awful lot. And, and that very much happens for Muslims, and it causes them to um, take more seriously their prayers, um, take more seriously spiritual reading and spiritual conversations. And then the, the other thing that I think is interesting, so Muslims are supposed to abstain from fighting and arguing and bitterness, right? And of course, we have that in the Bible, too. That The Bible says this is the fast that the Lord accepts. You know, it's not a fast in which you're getting into fights with each other. That's from, you know, that's what Isaiah tells us. And um, one of the reasons for that is, you know, when you have low blood sugar from fasting, you get irritable and you get more tendency, have more of a tendency to get into fights. And so even though Muslims and Christians alike believe we should not fight when we're fasting, we actually frequently get tempted to fight. And then we repent of that and we try to do better. And uh, so I think that some of those experiences that Muslims have are the same as what Christians would have when we fast. I don't know if this is the context that Mark was talking about when he said fasting, but the fasting that I kind of was familiar with growing up was individual fasting that you would practice kind of solo when you felt like you needed to take the time to really figure out what God might be calling you to do in a particular situation. And I really think that the fact that they do so much corporate fasting in Ramadan is one of the parts that makes it so unique um, and such a powerful way to kind of live out your faith is the the fact that everyone is um, not just like in solidarity, but like actually sacrificing alongside each other. I think that's true also of uh, Eastern Orthodoxy when I've experienced it as well that they, they have a fairly serious fast, even in the States. Probably not as much as the Coptics, as uh, Joseph mentioned, but it strikes me that it's much easier is not the right word, but there is a sense, when you do it with others, in your family and in your community, it's a different experience. Well, and just to go back to Joseph's earlier point of when you're a tiny minority in a country, how much more challenging it is to practice this as someone who has talked to some Muslim friends about doing this when it's definitely not socially supported in the same way. You know, it's not like here in the U.S., the restaurants all stay open at hours that are adjusted to those or get up early or, yeah, that sports stuff is accommodated to that sports stuff. Games, yeah. Maybe I can say two things that would be uh, edifying um, in relationship to this uh, question. One is that... um, 
So, yes, that is very much for Eastern Orthodox um, fasting. They have corporate fasts that are expected. But also, Roman Catholics, just because they don't practice it doesn't mean they're not supposed to. Um, the Roman Catholics are supposed <laughs> to fast in Lent and um, are supposed to fast on Fridays all year round. And gradually through the centuries, the requirements of that fasting got milder and milder until you're just supposed to not eat meat on Fridays. And when I was growing up, even though the school I went to was about 85% Jewish, had very few Catholics in it, it was a totally secular school. We never had fit, we never had meat in the cafeteria on Fridays, out of respect for the Catholics who could not eat meat. We'd always have fish on Fridays, and I think now that has even stopped being a thing in uh, most circles, even Catholic circles. But it's pretty recently dropped out of fashion among Catholics, and meanwhile, among evangelicals, I think frankly we are being unscriptural when we do not do corporate fasts. It's pretty clear in the Bible that. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, people fasted as communities. And I think the reason we don't is because of a misinterpretation of Jesus' teachings in Matthew 6, where he talked about fasting in secret. And we take that out of context. This is something that uh, Samuel Zwamer, who was perhaps the greatest uh, evangelical thinker and uh, outreacher to Muslims uh, in history, Samuel Zwamer argued that Jesus did not intend that we should keep secret from our Muslim neighbors the fact that we are fasting. And he pointed to the context in Matthew 5, where Jesus said, let your light uh, so shine before people that they may see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. And then goes on in chapter 6 to say, do these things in secret so that you will not get praised by uh, human beings, but be rewarded by your Father who is in heaven. And and if you put those two together, the key, assuming Jesus isn't contradicting himself, the key, concept, the key element is this, so that. And if your motivation is that your Father in heaven would be praised, then you should not keep your fast a secret, but you should let it be seen. If your motivation is that you would get praise and credit, then you should keep it a secret. And uh, so you need to work on your motivation. But if your motivation is right, there's all a reason why you should let it be known that you're fasting, if that will have the effect of drawing other people, whether your brothers and sisters in Christ, to fast with you, or uh, your uh, non-Christian friends, to know that you are a devout person. And that brings me to the second thing I wanted to say, which is, when Muslims and Christians talk to each other about spiritual things, it's different from when Christians talk to, um, when evangelicals talk to nominal Christians about matters of faith. When evangelicals are talking to nominal Christians, sometimes we want to uh, almost emphasize there's a difference. Uh, you know, it's, it's not enough just to say, I'm a Christian and, and I'm done. You know, you need to, there's something needs to happen. You need to turn to Christ. With Muslims, it's the opposite problem. Generally, when Muslims and Christians are talking, I'm generalizing, but 99% of the time, uh, when Muslims and Christians are talking, there's a sense on both parts that there's a huge gulf between us. You are the Muslims way over there. We are the Christians way over here. Or from the Muslims' point of view, you are the Christians way over there, and we are the Muslims way over here. And there's this huge chasm, an uncrossable chasm between us that um, uh, we're almost having our spiritual conversation shouting across that chasm. And I think anything we can do to uh, have that chasm feel emotionally narrower, I don't mean uh, denying there are 
irreducible differences between Muslims and Christians, between Islam and Christianity, but just reducing that sense of an unbridgeable chasm between us uh, is a good thing. And I think for that reason, it is great for Christians to fast in solidarity with our Muslim neighbors and friends during the month of Ramadan. Maybe you just um, fast one day in Ramadan uh, to enter into that experience with them, because what you find is when you do that, and then you have a conversation with your Muslim friend, suddenly there's this feeling of, we are in this together. Instead of us, I'm in one community and you're in a different community and never the twain shall meet. Actually, we're part of a single group of people having this experience together. And it, it, uh, it, it can lead to beautiful spiritual conversations. So what would be other things as, we're, as Christians are talking to Muslims, especially during the season of Ramadan, that, they, they might, uh, that Christians tend to misunderstand about Islam? Well, one thing I, I often hear Christians say, sure, the Muslims fast uh, during the day, but really they just sleep all day and then they party all night. So it's really a, just a party <laughs> night. Huh. And, and what I would say to that is, first of all, yeah, you try fasting from first light until sunset with no food or water or anything. And then tell me whether it's just partying and you won't. Um, second thing, that feasting in the evening, that's not just like, that's not just like immoral partying, although sometimes, obviously, I'm not saying all Muslims are very devout. Obviously, there are immoral Muslims who don't fast, and then they do just party in the evening. But think of those happy family times. You know, when we think of our Advent celebrations with our children, our spouses and children, and how precious they are to us, and we have eggnog or whatever it is that we have in our culture, you know, an outsider might look and say, oh, they're just partying. But to us, that's not just partying. That's a holy thing and a happy thing and a beautiful thing. The other thing, this isn't so much a um, a uh, misunderstanding, it's just something to be sensitive to, and that is if you, you know, if you are a Christian who does fast and you have experience with fasting, you know that if somebody sits in front of you and eats food in front of you and you smell that food, it makes it harder to fast. And of course, if they don't know that you're fasting, then they're not being inconsiderate. But if they do know that you're fasting and then they eat in front of you, it's a little bit rude. And in the same way, uh, if Christians are not fasting during Ramadan, um, and actually for Catholics, it's forbidden to fast during the Easter season. So um, you're not actually not supposed to fast right now if you're a Catholic. Then uh, at least don't eat right in front of your Muslim friends during the day because uh, that's that's kind of hard for them. Although Muslims will say uh, that will joke that they get more baraka, more more blessing from God, that their fast gets even more uh, blessed. Another thing, this is not so much a point of misunderstanding or insensitivity, is I would simply say point of opportunity for sensitivity is Ramadan is a great opportunity to get together with your Muslim neighbors and friends in the evening for a social meal. That's what they're geared to do. And um, if you have a Muslim friend uh, or neighbor and you say, hey, I would like to learn about, you know, how you keep Ramadan in your family. And could I come over in the evening for your evening meal? They, 99% of Muslims will be delighted to have you over to join them for the evening meal. And similarly, if you invite them, say, listen, I don't know how it's, how, how ought to do the meal correctly, but I will buy the halal meat, the permissible meat, and I'll get whatever foods. I usually want to break face to fast initially with some dates, but you know, I'll get the food you tell me to get, and, uh, and your family come over and spend the evening with us, and, and, and you tell me how to serve the foods that are the right foods. 
that can be a beautiful time of developing relationships. If you don't have a relationship with Muslims, you can reach out to the imam of your mosque in your community. And 99% of imams uh, in the U.S. would be delighted if you reach out to them and say, hey, I would like to uh, take this opportunity during Ramadan or my family and I to get to know um, uh, some Muslims in the community and perhaps share an iftar meal with them, iftar being the Muslim term for the fast-breaking meal in the evening. Sometimes mosques in America will hold iftar meals in the mosque, to which they explicitly invite non-Muslims. But you can also say, I'd like to get together with a family in their home or invite a family over to my home, and and they explain to me how to do it right. I I think you'll find 99% of Imams of mosques are delighted to welcome that, and then you can develop beautiful relationships coming out of that. We published an article a couple years ago about how Middle Eastern Christians tend to kind of, I don't know what the best word is, relate to the season of Ramadan. And there were some examples in there of Christians actually organizing iftars, which I thought was interesting. And also, per your point, how they try to do their best. Um, to refrain from eating and drinking in front of Muslims during that particular season. I, and to that end, I was wondering if there are any examples of how Christians who may be the minority faith or just one of the faiths there in other countries have done a really great job um, of bridge building during this time that you might want to highlight or point out. Yeah, pretty much every... Um Muslim-majority country that has a traditional Christian minority that I know of, that I've spent time in, I'm thinking of Egypt, I'm thinking of Palestinian territories, I'm thinking of uh, Jordan, I'm thinking of of Lebanon, that's a little bit of a debate whether the Muslims or the Christians are a minority or a majority, Um, or uh, Pakistan, for example. In all of those countries, um, Christians, many, not all Christians, but many Christians use this as an opportunity to uh, get together socially with their Muslim neighbors. Uh, often, uh, will bring them gifts of food uh, to share in the e- in the evening, and uh, also use it as a as an occasion to say, "Hey, I want you to forgive me for anything I've done to wrong you in the last year." And then, uh, if, the, if the person replies, uh, "Well, no, you forgive me for anything I've wronged you on over the last year," I, you, you know, you assure them that you do. Uh, and those 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 are practiced in virtually every country I know where uh, Muslims are the majority and you have a, a longstanding uh, Christian community. So there are beautiful, beautiful opportunities uh, to do that. You're absolutely right that not only in um, Muslim-majority countries, but in America, uh, many Christians uh, either host iftar meals for Muslim friends or will uh, jointly, churches will jointly organize with a mosque, a jointly sponsored and hosted iftar meal, um, which they may hold in the church's, you know, um, community room or something like that. And, and those can be beautiful opportunities to develop relationships. Are there particular, in terms of having that conversation where, um, you know, you, like you said, Muslims like to discuss religion. I found that just generally true, but uh, I would think it's especially true in Ramadan. Are there particular themes or entree points in which uh, it's easy to begin talking about Christian faith with uh, our Muslim friends? So, yes, absolutely. First, I think it's very important to say respect is really important for Muslims. Uh, Muslims have 
felt disrespected by Christians through the centuries and very they feel very acutely today almost it's almost I don't want to generalize about 100% of Muslims in the world but it's almost universal among Muslims that they feel disrespected by Christians which means that if you do respect them and you respect their faith even if you don't agree with everything in their faith if you respect their faith it's important to make that clear don't just take it for granted and say well if I don't act disrespectful, they'll know I respect them. No, you need to make an extra effort to show respect for them and show respect for what is sacred to them, which means that it's not appropriate to say, let's get together for an iftar meal, and then let me tell you why your religion is the bad religion and our religion is the right religion. Your prophet is a bad guy and our savior is is perfect. Uh, even if you believe that's true, that's not a helpful way to, to uh, make them feel the love of Jesus. That's a helpful way to make them not feel the love of Jesus. But if you show respect for them, we show respect for their faith, show respect for what's sacred to them, regardless of whether you agree with it or not. And in that context, having expressed that, talk about your faith and what your faith means to you. Generally, Muslims are very happy to have that conversation. Again, not all of them just want to get into an argument with you, but most Muslims are delighted to have that, that conversation with you. And, uh, and I think because Ramadan is a time when people are thinking about forgiveness of sins, asking God to forgive their sins, asking, uh, uh, seeking to uh, reconcile with uh, other people, that emphasis on forgiveness, both vertical towards God and horizontal towards one another, well, that's the obvious starting place to talk about um, what forgiveness means to you as a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you do reach out to um, Muslim friends or neighbors uh, during this month of Ramadan, or if you, particularly if you reach out to the imam of your local mosque, I think it's important to bear in mind that um, this is a scary time for the Muslim community in America. I think everybody's aware, of course, of the shocking uh, uh, New Zealand uh, massacres, terrorist attacks in uh, New Zealand on the mosques there. Uh, people are, the general public is less aware that there are constantly attacks on mosques and on Muslims, hate crimes and uh, vandalism of mosques and threats against mosques pretty much every day. And a lot of, particularly imams of mosques, are wondering uh, when our people come together to pray at our mosque during Ramadan, will they be safe or will there be another terrorist attack? And I think anything you can say as a Christian friend to express that you understand that, you care about that, you're concerned for the safety of your Muslim neighbors, you're even willing to volunteer to do what you can to help assure their safety, uh, that I think will go a long way to helping them feel uh, the love of Christ being uh, reflected through you. You convict uh, the old classical evangelical phrase you've convicted me to maybe go visit the local imam and do that very thing so god bless you for that and god bless everybody who's listened <laughs> well thank you so much joseph for just giving us a good understanding of what the season is about and some practical steps on how to move forward on this for people who have feedback they can offer it to us in two ways we're at podcast at christianitytoday.com we're also on twitter at ct podcasts so before we move on to the end of the show i just want to take this time to remind everyone that this podcast is being possible by everyone who subscribes to christianity today magazine our may issue is currently here mark i don't know if you had an article that you thought was particularly moving 
current issue. Well, we always need to talk about the cover story. I'm sorry, this is for the- The May issue, yeah. The May issue, yeah. This is our cover story. It's about ministry across the border. It's an interesting look at how it is that Christian organizations, especially Young Life in particular, ministers to young people who live in Mexico, cross the border each day to go to school in America, and how they live out that admittedly legal and moral tension uh, with these students. And so it's uh, it's a very interesting look at a border issue that is that I don't see talked about very much at all, but it is something that uh, Young Life Ministries in particular are doing, and they're working with young people there, and it's just a, a, an honest and frank examination of the difficulties and the joys of doing that. Yeah, I think some people may have listened to our podcast that we recorded about a month ago with our immigration editor, or immigrant communities editor, excuse me, Becca McNeil, and this is the piece that we hinted at in there about student ministries at the border. It's out now. You can go ahead and read it if you're a subscriber to Christianity Today magazine. And if you're not, you can become one by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. That's orderct.com slash quick to listen. And again, a subscription is what allows you to read our print content at any time, whether it is online or in the actual print magazine. All right, now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, and everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy recently. Mark, I'm assuming you have something. Uh, Yes, Uh, it's a small thing, but it's a big thing. That is to say, uh, a couple weeks ago, I tried to work out, uh, and I normally work out 45 minutes at a shot. Two days, two days in a row. I didn't even think I did it two days in a row. I went to the gym and after 10 minutes, I was just exhausted. So I think I was both mentally and physically wasted after a few tense weeks at work. And uh, yesterday, I was happy to report that I actually completed one of my 45-minute workouts. So hey, that's I think great. I'm, I'm back in the swing of things. So that's a nice, nice change of pace. It, and it, I just woke up this morning feeling so much better as a result. So Wow. I'm happy to hear that. That really is like frustrating when you feel like you just can't get anywhere, make anywhere near workout routine and also knowing that I don't know if you use like working out as a way to like relieve stress, but I've done that too. So then it's just even like more stressful. Exactly. No, no. I remember uh, training for ministry and visiting, uh, doing uh, pastoral care in hospitals. And the, the chaplain said, the worst thing you can do when you're done with a day of working with peace, people who are suffering in that sort of way is to go home and take a nap. He said, you need to go home and work out. I was wondering why I was so depressed after visiting the hospital all day. <laughs> so same thing with any pressure situation. The worst thing to do is to just veg out. The best thing to do is just do something physical. Cool. Well, people can follow you outside at, of here. At the Gallery Report, which is a weekly newsletter that uh, I link to articles and comment on them. And you can find that at ChristianityToday.com slash the Gallery Report. Cool. All right, Joseph, do you want to take it away? Yeah, I think my greatest source of joy this last week, I wanted to say it was uh, related to Easter and the resurrection of Christ or something related to some Muslim friends. But to be honest, my greatest joy this last week is that my wife and I just celebrated our 35th wedding anniversary. We both uh, come from homes where our parents were divorced when we were in college. So it's not at all, uh, you know, doesn't go without saying that um, by the grace of God, We've been blessed uh, with a happy marriage all these years and blessed with wonderful children growing up in the context of that marriage. And the Bible says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives grace from God. And my wife has been a grace from God for me. Where did you guys meet? 
Uh, we met when she was uh, still a student at Duke University, and I was uh, working with uh, a Christian ministry where involved my coming and speaking to students at various college campuses about, I just graduated from college, and uh, talking about the needs around the world and God's concern for the needy around the world. And I, she was the organizer of the meetings at Duke. And as I was driving with my partner on the way to Duke, I was praying for the meeting there as, as one always does. And we were praying and I, I felt that God spoke to me and said, I will give you a nurse for Mauritania from Duke. I was looking for people to go with me to Mauritania, and I didn't even know if they had a nursing school at Duke, but I thought, well, we'll find out whether that was really from God or just my imagination. But when we arrived and I shook her hand for the first time, I felt, again, God spoke to me and said, this is the one. And uh, I thought, again, it was probably just my imagination. But when uh, we went by her room for her to get her Bible on the way to the meeting. And I saw on her wall a big map of North Africa. I said, why do you have a map of North Africa? And she said, because I'm a nursing student and I'm preparing to go as a nurse to a needy community in North Africa. And I said, I want to talk to you after the meeting. And that's how we met. There you go. You're like, that no big a, deal. That is a great story. We are definitely <laughs> going to include that. God just prophesied that. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's wonderful. Yeah. Do you want to tell people where they can find you outside of this podcast? People can find me by um, going to my website, www.josephcumming.com. And uh, people always add an S to my name. There's no S. It's just coming. C-U-M-M-I-N-G, josephcumming.com. I recently got hacked, so the homepage isn't working quite right. But um, I think you can find uh, that's the best uh, you, you, you can find. Or, or you can just Google my name, Joseph Cumming. You get the Wikipedia article, and that will take you to josephcoming.com if the homepage is broken. All right. For me, I would say, as Mark hinted at earlier, I was in the Pacific Northwest this weekend, and I got to spend time with people that I've known since I was in elementary and middle school. And we've all been friends for going on 20-ish years now, which is kind of crazy to think about, but nevertheless true at this point. And it's a huge treat to be able to maintain and sustain friendships that have lasted that long and especially when we all still like each other and get along that is also a relieving thing to feel too so i was really glad that my friends who put in the work to organize this made this happen because it was a awesome weekend all right people can find me on twitter i'm at m-e-p-a-y-n-l thank you everyone for listening to another episode of quick to listen this podcast is produced by myself and Cray Allred the music is by Sweeps you can find this podcast wherever you get podcasts and if you want to rate and review it you have to go to Apple Podcasts to do that and we're really appreciative of everyone who does do that and if you want to read the cover story which I think is definitely worth your time you can do that by becoming a subscriber that's at orderct.com slash quick to listen we will see you all next week bye